the thing that boggles the mind is that we take it for granted. You know, we, we're not constantly amazed. We just sort of go, okay, we've got some new technology, great. Um, it is moving at, at such a pace. And I don't know, we have this human ability to adapt really quickly to a new normal, but it, there's nothing normal uh, about it. Like this is this uh, incredible age of discovery. And I think music and art can open that up and make us more curious, more reflective, uh, and hopefully more grateful as well. What does information sound like? What does data feel like? Picture a graph with a line that curves slowly, then more dramatically, up and to the right. Imagine another one, a dense plot of dots connected by a jagged sawtooth-shaped line, or a rolling wave getting higher and more compressed as it crosses the page. If we know what this information is trying to tell us, it's pretty staggering maybe even moving. The rise in the Earth's temperature, the search for water in the atmosphere of a planet circling a completely foreign sun, the tremors at the very heart of our galaxy. But cloaked in numbers and graphs, scientific discoveries can seem clinical, just blips on a screen as distant from our own lives as the stars in our sky. Picture them again, the steep rising curve the jagged line, the rolling wave. Do you feel anything? The composer David Ibbett wants you to. I'm David Ibbett. I'm assistant professor of composition, and I also teach in the uh, humanities uh, department. Using a combination of orchestral and electronic elements, Ibbett's work unlocks surprising layers of drama, foreboding, and hope hidden within those charts and figures. His compositions bring worldly observations home to the body, the way good art always does. They make us realize this is our world, all around us, long before us, long after us. They make us feel wonder. This is Sounds of Berkeley. I'm John Mirasola. Today on the podcast, my conversation with David Ibbett. Steeped in science from a young age, reared on Aphex Twin and Radiohead, and classically trained at Cambridge University in the UK, Ibbett began blending those diverse influences during graduate school, and he hasn't stopped since. It feels somehow totally unsurprising to learn that he was the first guest composer at Fermilab, the US Department of Energy's particle accelerator laboratory. He now heads up the Multiverse Concert Series, a nonprofit whose science-infused productions include Ibbett's Black Hole Symphony, which returns to the Boston Museum of Science this spring after a sold-out 2022 run, and the first annual Climate Hope Concert, which premieres at WBUR's City Space on Earth Day. In addition to Ibbett's work in the Composition and Humanities departments at Berkeley, he'll also be teaching electronic production and design courses here. In this episode, we dig into the process of turning science into sound and of finding artistic inspiration within other disciplines. And we cover a lot of other really fascinating ground on the way to our final subject, sandwiches. Here's our conversation. How 
how would you describe the sort of music you make and the the ideas and the interests that drive it? Well, uh, I guess if we have to do a listing, we call maybe we call it electro symphonic. Um, it's a recipe that combines all the things that I love. I, I came from classical music background, and uh, I started off quite traditional, but um, in the background, I've always loved electronica, you know, anything with a beat um, and the, the electronic production side of things. And, you know, it took me a while to, to put those two together. Uh, but when you do that, uh, you can just create these original worlds of sound where there's so many combinations of instruments and electronic sounds and beats that, that haven't been tried. And it, it's hard to get it right. So, it, you know, it keeps me busy. Uh, my other passion is is science, and that comes from my dad, who's a uh, research chemist back in the UK. So for my graduation piece, uh, my doctorate, I did this journey to Europa, which is Jupiter's moon. Uh, and it has uh, this amazing possibility of having alien life beneath its icy uh, surface in the subterranean ocean. And uh, I did this big uh, tone poem for flute and electronics. Um, you know, it took me most part of a year. Um, and using the flute to make the sounds of rockets, you know, the rushing air. And fl- the flute can do a good impression of aliens if they sing and play. Karen Deflate was the player I worked with really closely on that one. And uh, we taught it in Europe. And there was just a great response. So that's, you know, that was the moment where it kind of clicked all my interests, you know, using the electronics to make these big uh, sound worlds and doing things like aliens and space travel you know, electronics that you bring in all these different sounds and layers. And then having classical music, you have performers on stage who can project and shape melodies, communicate with an audience uh, in a one-to-one way. So ever since then, uh, that's been my focus. Take me back to that moment when you started figuring out like, okay, I have this, this deep interest in science. I have uh, obviously a deep interest in music. That's what you're studying. How did you sort of arrive at the conclusion that like you could make a tone poem about one of the moons of Jupiter? You could bring these two loves together in a way that perhaps no one's really done in the same way. I mean, you have, you even if you think back, like you have like Messian writing, transcribing bird song and things like that, but that's not quite the same as what you're doing. It, it seems in line with it though. I think all composers have to look outwards and find something that is uh, captivating, beautiful, but also something mysterious that we want to understand more. And my, my teacher back at Cambridge always said that to me. You know, every composer's got their, their passion. And then, you know, they spend their life trying to bring that into music. And it's, it's difficult. And yeah, Messian, it, it was birds. And he, you know, he was locked up in, uh, in a prisoner of war camp listening to the birds and imagining uh, freedom. And you can see how if you have time on your hands and you're in a desperate situation, you, you can make these, um, these soulful connections. For me, the, the science has always been a source of, of hope. And just looking at what has happened in my own lifetime, you know, we've had the first discovery of an exoplanet, you know, a planet around another star. Uh, when I was born, we didn't know if there were any. Now we know there's uh, 5,000 and counting. You know, the human genome project, uh, amazing advances in computing. I mean, it's this, the thing that boggles the mind is that we take it for granted. You know, we, we're not constantly amazed. We just sort of go, okay, we've got some new technology, great. Um, it is moving at, at such a pace. And I don't know, we have this human ability to adapt really quickly to a new normal. 
but it, there's nothing normal uh, about it. Like this is this uh, incredible age of discovery. And I think music and art can open that up and make us more curious, more reflective, uh, and hopefully more grateful as well. I mean, it was just so rich, the Europa story, when we just kind of started thinking, uh, you know, a flute can sound like a rocket. Like there's lots of composers who've done that. There's a sound on a flute called a jet whistle. I mean, the flute is just this great uh, sort of pantomime instrument. You can make all these different mouth sounds and you can control the tone so much. So, you know, we could kind of tell the whole story of this journey just with the embouchure of the flute and then electronic sound that you layer it up uh, so you can have all these sounds together. You know, the, the joy of that one piece really has spawned, you know, hundreds of pieces I've done since then. Tell me a bit about how you go about turning science into music. You've talked about this idea of sonification, and I'm wondering if you could describe that a little bit and tell me also about any of the other uh, techniques you're using to bring these concepts to life. I listen to pieces of Black Hole Symphony, and there are moments where it feels like you're giving these concepts sort of their own distinct characteristics or instrument voices or tonalities, and I'm just curious how you approach that. Well, there's a lot of um, storytelling craft to composing that's been, that's been around a long time. You know, we have this idea of program music, music that tells a story and uses the color of the sound, the timbre, to evoke uh, images and instruments playing characters. You know, Peter and the Wolf, you've got the grandpa who's the bassoon. And so, that you know, there's a rich history of that, and that, that works well for science. So I can have a piccolo being um, x-rays and I can have an electric guitar being a burst of, uh, of gamma uh, in, a, in a jet of, of plasma. You know, that same idea of instruments playing characters, but um, suiting a story about black holes instead of uh, Peter and the Wolf. There's this technique of sonification, which is, uh, you know, fairly new on the musical scene. I mean, it sounds uh, fancy, but really the counterpart is visualization. That we're all used to, you know, a visualization of some data uh, as a, a graph. We, we've all seen graphs, and the problem with them is you have to understand what you're looking at. So sonification literally means listening to data, and it allows you to communicate something. The goal is something that you couldn't see with the eye. If you looked at it on the page, you wouldn't necessarily know what's special, but music can add this emotional dimension. So we, we have all of the, the power of the instruments to show you know, what's significant about the data. But also the ear has got some real superpowers compared to the eye. So telescopes pick up uh, light frequencies, very wide ranging light frequencies that are invisible to the eye. But if you take those waves and you map them to musical waves, uh, you can hear way more of what's actually there. So instead of looking at, uh, looking at it on a graph that requires, you know, a bunch of context to understand what you're looking at, if you hear it, you immediately are struck with the shape. And uh, light can become sound and it can become harmony. So the opening piece on your first album, Octave of Light, is called Water Romanza. Can you talk me through what went into that composition uh, musically and or scientifically? Sure. So the oct octave of light, uh, it's talking about exoplanets. And I was working with an astrophysicist, uh, Roy Gould, at uh, the Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. And uh, he was teaching me, how do we know that these exoplanets are there? And it's really fascinating because you can't see them. They're too small. 
uh, and the glare of the star obscures them. So they use this detective work, and uh, one of the methods is called the transit method. So the planet passes in front of the star and casts a very tiny shadow, you know, 1%, less than 1% dip in the light. But you can analyze the light, break it apart with a spectrum, and find out what the planet is made of, because you see this unique uh, set of colors that uh, are in the atmosphere of the planet, a bit absorbed. And that will tell you if the planet's got oxygen, has it got ice, liquid water, methane. Uh, a lot of these colors are actually in the infrared light that, uh, you know, TV remote produces, uh, but our eyes aren't sensitive. So working with Roy, I thought, well, if we can't see these colors, can we hear them? The ear's got these advantages over the eye, and one of them is a wide frequency range response up to 10 octaves uh, of sound versus only one octave of light that we can see. So this process of sonification, I take the spectrum uh, of an, a planet or um, an element and take the peaks and troughs and turn them into musical notes. And that works because light and sound are both waves and they have uh, frequencies and wavelengths. So it's easy to convert one uh, to the other. So this first track, uh, Water Romanza, is about water throughout the universe. And of course, we know water is essential for life as we know it. And uh, water vapor, of course, that means that you've got uh, liquid uh, water and life uh, as we know it could exist. So if we find that on another planet and we find it in the atmosphere, that's amazing, amazing news. And it just so happens that the spectrum of water vapor is a really interesting set of uh, frequencies, the, they call them the absorption lines. So turning those into notes gave us this beautiful chord. And I wanted to see, you know, could we just do this, this meditation on water and what it means and what it might mean to find it elsewhere. I was working with the soprano uh, Beth Sterling, who's the vocalist on the album. And I have her at the beginning of the song singing these frequencies that make up the spectrum of water. So it makes this water chord out of the voice. Of course, she's singing water. Uh, it's called a vocalese. Actually, we talked about Messian. Messian wrote plenty of vocaleses, uh, just taking one word or just just ah or something. That's the only lyrics for the piece. So it has this meditative feel, and I write the melodies around it. I write them for the violin, and uh, there's electronics, and I also have a piano version of the piece um, that just grew out of this one this one chord that came from the spectrum of water vapor. It's a really lovely piece, and it's, it is interesting how it feels like it could be equally at home on like a, a later Fortet album uh, as, as on some kind of classical composition, 
And I'm curious how you're bringing those influences together. Like, who are you listening to? Who are you taking inspiration from as you're trying to blend these uh, more traditional classical musical influences with uh, electronic music and other kinds of contemporary music? It's kind of a volatile mix, uh, which keeps me busy. Uh, you know, I love many, many things that, you know, don't always go together. So, you know, I grew up, grew up on the Beatles, obviously, and but, but equally... Um, the symphonies, uh, I mean, symphonies are a big uh, passion of mine and these kind of bigger shapes, multi-thematic compositions. But then um, I'm a huge fan of Radiohead and the way that they bring in these this wor- worlds of sound, but it's still kind of centered around a, a rock band and Tom York's voice as the thread that brings it all together. So um, one of the strengths of classical music is that it, it can be all-embracing. The first generation of symphonies were bringing in all these different kinds of music and trying to integrate them into a larger story. We don't really hear that now. You know, if we listen to, you know, Beethoven's symphony, we might think it's sort of one style all the way through, but it really isn't. You can have a march that goes into a waltz, uh, into um, a slow movement. Uh, You can bring in evocations of brass and fanfares and military music all in one piece. So classical music has got this history of trying to unite things. And that, that seems like a really fun challenge for me. You know, I love um, Electronica, Aphex Twins, probably my favorite there, uh, Hard to Beat Him. You know, it's so dry and rhythmic. Uh, it's, I really see it as sort of the opposite end of a spectrum to orchestral music, which is in a, a rich acoustic. It's all about resonance, um, sound in space. And if you try to take sort of dry uh, produced rhythmic electronic music and put it in the same environment as um, resonant chamber music, um, they don't go together that well <laughs> unless you really uh, plan it out. So that keeps me really busy. So that Water Romanza, you know, it has this kind of 808 beat and it has like a 909 clap on it. You know, I love the, the kind of vintage drum machines. Those are intentionally dry, but then the back layers are these lush harmonic, well, uh, try to make them lush, uh, harmonic layers with this kind of story of why they are the way they are. If you get those that play of contrasts right, it can be really uh, delicious with a sort of a, a crunchy outside and a gooey center. So when you think of visualization, an artist doesn't really have the problem of a graph not being visually pleasing. If you look at a line graph, your eye is able to read just like, okay, that's the direction the line moves. If I understand the X and the Y axis, I understand what to do with that information. I imagine that a challenge of sonification is that sometimes the data does not sound particularly nice. And I'm wondering if that's a challenge you come up against frequently or infrequently and how you how you tackle that. So I guess um, the emotional quality of the of the sonification, it's an opportunity to reinforce what the data is telling us. So if the data is about something uh, destructive and powerful, I don't sh- you wouldn't necessarily want it to sound nice. There are aspects to it. I mean, the, the idea of sonification as a way to reveal what's really there. 
So that's about accuracy, but it's also about making choices about how you sonify, because there are all different ways to do it. You know, you can use pitch rising and falling to show something rising and falling. You can convert a set of numbers into harmonies if they have kind of uh, ratios that, uh, that work that way. Uh, you can use rhythm as something uh, gets more intense uh, or, or less intense. You can, you know, play through multiple instruments, picking up different bands of data. There's no limit to the number of ways to do it. So you want to communicate what's important. So that means you've got to find a kind of a resolution uh, for the data that uh, shows you the important events like peaks and troughs in a line. So if you round it in a way that you el eliminate all those, it's not a good sonification because you don't you don't hear what's important. But you can go too far the other way and you communicate all these little fine, you know, get in, into microtones or, you know, a rhythm that is uh, extremely complicated. Uh, you then are limited to electronic means because you can't, human being can't play it anymore. I mean, the most famous sonification is by LIGO, the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. And that one is done by, by scientists listening to gravitational waves passing through the Earth from a merging, pair of merging black holes. It just so happens that those waves are oscillating within human hearing, you know, 100 uh, up to 1,000 hertz. It's not sound, but it's easy to take the data and play it back as sound in a one-to-one -one relationship. So you don't need to do any work on it. I have another data set of a larger black hole collision, uh, which is a simulation because we haven't actually managed to measure one of those yet. That one, the frequencies are like 0.1 to 1 hertz. So we can't hear that. That is uh, infrasound. So instead, I use that to oscillate another tone, which is called frequency modulation, which electronic music people know uh, is a great technique uh, for making synthesizers. And there's a sort of poetry, I use it to oscillate a trombone. So I have a trombone going up and down that's being modified by this uh, low, I mean like an LFO basically, like a uh, low frequency oscillator. Uh, so I imagine poetically that there's a space trombone near to these merging black holes playing a note and being stretched and squashed. So how do I get it to sound nice? Well, actually, I kind of uh, wanted to have my cake and eat it. So I have the trombones stretching uh, the slide going up and down. So that's microtonal and it has to be within um, an augmented fourth to fit on the slide. But then I wanted the rest of the orchestra to get involved. So I take the same data set, I stretch it over six octaves, and then I round it to half, half steps, and then sometimes a major scale, sometimes a minor scale. So that, you know, if you round it to a major scale, it will sound nice, maybe? Depends on the rhythm, depends on the, the data. I mean, hopefully it sounds dramatic. And it has a, it has a backbeat as well. That's probably the hardest one I've done because uh, I wanted to show the sliding, uh, but I also wanted to show the, the dancing of the black holes. And then um, 
It's actually, actually two sonification methods at once. I hope that whatever choices I make, I still communicate what's important. And then if you, yeah, if you really want to do research, you, you've got to get into the fine grain. But for bringing people into the world of science and getting them involved, I think sonification has got a lot to offer. Let's talk about the new concert you're working on, uh, the Climate Hope concert. Can you tell me anything about where you're at in that process, what's going on with it, uh, and just a little bit of background on, on what you're doing with this new concert? So Climate Hope concert is coming up on Earth Day, so it's not that far off. And it's something that we've wanted to do for a long time with Multiverse Concert Series. That's the project that we use to structure and also to fundraise for all these collaborations. We've touched on climate change many times in previous shows. Uh, you know, we, we do one about coral reefs and uh, with Sarah Davies of BU. And uh, it comes out in another project we do about polymers and how polymers, you know, plastics can be um, single use and uh, discarded, pollute the environment, poison the earth. Or we can, uh, we can do better and we can make ones that are biodegradable, ones that can self-heal, uh, ones that can have properties that mean we can use them again and again. I mean, I have two kids and I think about what world uh, I want them to grow up into. And I mean, just looking at the, um, at the state of things, if you follow the IPCC reports, it's terrifying. So I think everybody has got climate change on their minds and it's doom and gloom. If something seems um, horrendous and there's nothing you can do about it, well, what do you do? You just ignore it and get on with things and hope, hope for the best. That's not going to work. Instead, we have to have a rational hope, and that needs to come from what's actually being done. And there's a lot being done, and there's a lot that we can do. So this Climate Hope concert, uh, it's an ensemble concert where we bring together different projects that are pieces of a puzzle to do with uh, regeneration of society. Uh, so not just reducing carbon, I mean, that's really important, but also improving society in ways that will lead to less waste and to you know, more education, which generally leads to um, you know, better results in uh, in so many ways. Um, and at the end, we'll give the audience uh, some homework, some things to do in their own lives. Everyone has their own kind of source material for their art. I'm sure you'll encounter students who are interested in other subjects the way that you're interested in science. They might be into poetry or history or food. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious, what are the elements in your own process that are transferable uh, to making music about other domains of knowledge? How do you advise the student who wants to write a symphony about a sandwich? I say do it. Uh, I mean, yeah, maybe uh, the sandwiches of the world. <laughs> I, mean, it, I mean, yeah, music, I think, is at its strongest when it connects with the world and it connects with people. So it's not just reading about the science that's got me into this. It's meeting the people actually doing the science and figuring out, you know, I asked them, you know, what about this research would you want to share with people who maybe don't know? And then we think, well, okay, we can do that with music. Let, let's do it. So I think whatever you're passionate about, maybe music has connected with it already uh, and there's a community out there or maybe not. So it's, it's a really fun challenge to try and put things together that haven't been put together before. I mean, that's literally what composition is. It means putting things together. It doesn't mean coming up with things from scratch. It means uh, 
you know, sandwiches composed of uh, bread and lettuce and cheese and, I don't know, some kind of uh, uh, tofu slice in my case. Uh, but, um, you know, you didn't make uh, the cheese yourself, maybe you did. You, you chose it and, it and it goes together because of uh, the, the balance and the way that the ingredients complement each other. So that is a challenge I think all composers should be taking on. And there's also this idea of the composer as as discovering things that can be in the raw notes. You know, you can discover a new melody, a new harmony. You can you can discover a new space for music to exist where maybe it didn't before. And working with other people, they'll give you ideas. And you know, coming together to do a concert, bringing people together. You know, it's not just about the notes. It's about people and what happens when they get together in the spirit of, of music and discovery. So um, I say go for it. And sonification might be a, a tool out there as a way to uh, have a sort of one-to-one concrete connection between music and, and uh, something else, something that's being observed about the world. But it's not the only trick. You know, we've got everything from from program music and or just putting things side by side, having people talking about uh, a topic and then music or or at the same time just bringing them together i think and you will you'll have some wonderful results david thanks so much for sticking around a few more minutes with me uh this has been a really interesting and uh inspiring conversation i really appreciate your time thanks so much john it's a joy to be at berkeley and looking forward to teaching uh some music and science uh, in the future This episode was produced by me, John Mirasola, with help from Brian Paris. Special thanks to Nick Balkin. Our theme music is by Sleeping Lion. Other music in this episode comes from David Ibbett's compositions with the Multiverse Concert Series, Black Hole Symphony, and Octave of Light, which features soprano Beth Sterling and violinist Amelia C. The LIGO sonification is courtesy of Caltech, MIT, and the LIGO Laboratory. If you've got any thoughts or suggestions about the show, feel free to send us an email at soundspodcast at berkeley.edu. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.